Um, this, like I said a moment ago, this, these four verses come as a part, as you probably know, of a much larger conversation that we want to talk about tonight between Jesus and the woman of Samaria who was at the well when Jesus was passing by. And it's what you might call a crucial conversation between the two. Uh, I use that word because uh, there was a book several years ago. It was from the business world. Maybe you heard it, Crucial Conversations. And I don't even remember who wrote it. Uh, Stephen Covey or somebody of that, that nature. And uh, it talked about how a crucial conversation is one that has two parts to it. Uh, one, the stakes are high. So the topic is one that's of such importance that you got to decide it or else things could go bad. But also the tension is high because there's not agreement on the particular topic that's important. That's what makes a crucial conversation. If you don't have those two things, the conversation is not what we would call crucial. Uh, that is, if there's not high stakes, if it's about something that's not that important, you may have high tension, but it's not all that important that you resolve it because the topic is relatively small, or vice versa. It may be high stakes, but everybody agrees. And so you don't really have to have a conversation to come to agreement. Here between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, there's something they're talking about which is of great importance. Jesus thinks it's one thing, she thinks it's another right? Jesus thinks the issue is one thing. She thinks the issue is another thing. There's disagreement and tension, probably also because Jesus is a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman, high tension. But the stakes in terms of what Jesus believes the conversation is about could not be higher. Now think for a minute, a little bit, before we get into our two points tonight, think about this Samaritan woman with me, okay? And, and y'all can maybe help me answer these questions. This is a little quiz for you. Um, the Samaritan woman, where is she at? What is she doing? The at the well. Why is she there? Drawing water. Drawing water. Good. In the middle of the day, right? Outside of, Outside of Israel. She's in Samaria. She's from Samaria. Samaritans and Jews do not get along. Right? And there's a racial component to that. The Samaritans were a mixed group, Jewish, some Jewish, but mostly other nations mixed in. And there was also, significantly for this story, a religious component to that. The Samaritans followed a religion which could best be described as a cult, mixing Judaism with various other pagan practices. All right? So you got that. What else? What's the background of this Samaritan woman that we didn't read? You're helping me. Multiple husbands, right? That's a key part of the story. Jesus puts his finger on the issue. She willingly, you know, agrees to what Jesus has said. In fact, that's what causes her to believe in Jesus, is Jesus has told her all that she ever did. Uh, and that is she had five husbands. Doesn't tell us how she went from one to the other. But she had five. And now the current companion that she's with, the male companion, is not her husband. So really, no matter what the reasons are why she went from one to the other to the other to the other, it doesn't really matter. Probably she's experienced a lot of fill in the blank. Grief, pain, sadness, sorrow. It may be because of her own decisions. Maybe not. We don't know. Maybe all of them died completely out of her control. We don't know. Either way, she's probably hurting. Now, here's what's interesting to me. 
the crucial conversation that Jesus wants to have with her is not one that she automatically is ready to have. She doesn't even know she needs to have it. But Jesus presses it. And it's not the one that you and I might think she needs. If this woman came to us, we would want to talk to her about several other things before we got to this topic. We would think about um, making wise decisions, relationship education. Uh, Maybe we want to give her a financial freedom class. I mean, there's all kinds of things to meet this woman's needs. Here's what Jesus does. I'm not saying those other things are bad or you shouldn't have those things. Here's what Jesus does. She needs to think about God differently than she currently is thinking about God. And right there you've got something that's really important in the Bible. God, you know, there are many topics to think about in life, and you have to think about them all on their own terms. But there is no topic in life that is irrelevant to God. Or, better way to say it, there is no topic in life to which God is irrelevant. God is a topic that should shape and change everything in our lives from relationships to finances to whatever it happens to be. One of the core things that as human beings we have to learn is how to think about, love, obey, and yes, worship the one true God. And in order to do that, you have to know how to think about him according to his revealed will. And so Jesus brings up this very interesting topic. The spirituality of God. Verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And that's where we're going to get our two points tonight. First of all, we're going to talk about the spiritual God. What does that mean? God is spirit. Why, is that, why would that be so revolutionary for this woman and for us to learn? And then secondly, what about that second phrase, that implication of it that Jesus draws? Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit. All right, so let's look at those two things. First of all, God is spirit. Uh, Why do you think Jesus lays that piece of theology on her? God is spirit. Well, it's interesting in the conversation uh, to notice this woman up to now has been thinking almost completely materialistically. Now, the word, I'm not saying materialistically in the sense that she's greedy. A lot of times we use that word to mean we want more stuff, way more than we really need. But I'm not using it that way. I'm saying she could not think beyond the material. She couldn't think beyond the tangible. And so it's interesting that Jesus would say to her, listen, God is spirit. God is beyond the material. Now, you can notice uh, in the story, uh, Jesus, first of all, asks her for a drink, and she gives it to him, and Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me, and I would give you a drink, and that drink that I give you would be much better than the one you're giving me, because you would never be thirsty again if you drank it. And what does the woman say in response? Sir, give me that drink. All right. But, she says, where is your bucket? Out of which well are you going to draw this magic water that you're speaking about? Do you notice what I mean by materialistic? Jesus is teaching a spiritual lesson. 
you're giving me a tangible drink, but let me use this as an example of what I came into this world to do. I came to give you spiritual drink so that if you believe in me, you'll receive that life-giving water inside your heart, and that water is going to satisfy you at a much deeper level than H2O. But in her mind, she couldn't get beyond H2O. And so she's wondering, where's his bucket? What well does he have? Why has he been hiding this well from us? And oh, what a joy if I had this well. That way I wouldn't have to come back here at noon to draw water for my family. Same thing happens whenever uh, Jesus asks her to call her husband. And that's when, of course, it comes out that she doesn't have a husband. She's with a man that's not her husband. She's had five other husbands before that. And notice how the woman immediately goes to a debatable topic about religion. But she keeps the conversation at the material. All right. So verse 19. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Let's debate. Let's have the Jewish versus Samaritan debate about religion, and it boils down to that mountain or this mountain. Go. Let's stop talking about my husband. Let's stop talking about all these other details. Let's have a good old discussion about which piece of dirt God wants us to worship on. Again, she's thinking materialistically. Now, I'm not faulting her for this in the sense that I don't think really all of us. I think all of us would have this same mentality, right? So I'm not saying she's a special case. But notice, Jesus believes that for her to really experience something new in her life, for her to experience healing in her life, she's got to move beyond that. She's got to get beyond arguing over plots of land and over H2O and particular wells and buckets and all the rest. She's got to get to a heart issue. And that's where Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit. God is not material or physical. Now, up to now in this series, there have been moments, I think, where I've challenged y'all. I've tried to get you to expand your minds a little bit. Because there are some things, of course, in the Bible about God that are very big and heady. And we're not trying to look at these things simply in order to be big and heady. We're looking at these things to try to get a sense of awe at how much greater God is than us. So think about the spirituality of God for a minute. Our confession of faith defines this idea this way. God is without body, parts, or passions. God is without body, God is without parts, and God is without passions. That's what it means for God to be spiritual rather than material. All material things have those three, have body, parts, and passions. God does not have a body. Uh, he does not have a physical nature. Whether that is you're speaking about a head or hands or any other body part, he doesn't actually have them. God is a spirit. Uh, you say, explain that to me, Stan. What does that look like? I have no idea. Um, you know, I can't explain it. That's the point, right? God is something completely different than everything we see with our eyes and feel with our hands and smell and all the rest. God is, is in a different category. He's spiritual. No body. Also, no parts. You can't say God is X plus Y plus Z equals God. God is simply God. And everything about God is God. Right? 
Uh, whether you're speaking about God's love or God's justice or God's grace or God's truth, all of God's aspects are themselves definitions of God. God is not composed of parts. Also, God does not have passions like us. Um, now, God does have an emotional life, but he does not have passions, meaning God is not moved by anything outside of himself and outside of his control in any way, shape, or form. Uh, God is only directed by his own self. That's what it means for God to be spiritual. Anything material has those three things. It has a body, meaning it is limited to a certain place in time. It has parts, meaning it can only be alive if it has all those parts together assembled. And it has passions. It is moved upon and changed by all kinds of things outside of itself. God is completely different than all of that. Bigger, higher, greater. Did I blow your mind with that? It's, somebody might say, well, what in the world? Why, did, why does this matter? Well, that's, that's the question we have to think about. After all, this is why I'm so surprised by this story. That Jesus would bring that up to the Samaritan woman. That's what he chose. To talk about how God has no body parts or passions. Why would he do that? Why would he choose that for this woman? You're allowed to answer. What do you think? What's the big, why is this so crucial? Yes, it gets to the heart of what's wrong in her life and actually in our life. How does it get to the heart of what's wrong in her life and our life? Well, what's wrong at the heart of her life is apparently she has been, well, making endless comparisons of God with other things, uh, even to the point that when Jesus brings up God, she can't help but go to material things. She can't help but go to this piece of dirt versus that piece of dirt. When Jesus brings up living water that will satisfy her soul, she can't help but think about H2O. There's something hindering her relationship with God, which is her earth-boundedness, her inability to think beyond what she can see, what she can touch, and what she can feel. Now, it's important to note right now that Scripture does often describe God as if he had body parts, which makes what I just said kind of awkward. Uh, because some of y'all might be thinking, well, wait a minute. The Bible says God has eyes that see. He's got a hand that goes out. He's got an arm that saves. What does that mean? Well, it's important to note that every time those are used, they're used to accommodate our weakness, to describe God in terms, really in the only terms we can understand, honestly. And every time they're used to signify not literally what makes up the physical being of God, because he doesn't have a physical being, but they're used as symbols of his actions. In other words, it says God has a mouth because God does, in fact, speak. He's capable of the action of speaking, not because he literally has physical lips and, and a tongue. Same thing with hands. God, it says God has hands that stretch forth to save because God actually does the saving, not because God physically has hands and so forth. Same, actually, thing with emotions. When it talks about God having love and God even changing his mind or repenting or being moved to compassion, 
those are used in the exact same way. It's describing what really is true about God in terms that we can understand. But it should never be taken with such literalness that we start to think that God is just like us. And this is the key. Okay, This is the thing that this woman needs most. She needs to understand there is a God who is way beyond any human being or any other creature. And she needs to put her trust in that God for all that she needs and for all that she is. Same thing with you and me. Uh, What if, let me give you this example. What if someone treated you like an animal? How would you feel? Sit. Yeah. Roll over. Heal. What if someone did that to you? How would you feel? Good, affirmed. I love you. No, extraordinarily offended. Because why? Everybody knows a human being is better than an animal. Rational human, animal. Definite difference. Well, what this is saying is, if it's, if it's offensive for human beings to be treated like animals, how much more offensive is it for God to be treated like a human being? For God to be put in human boxes that we invent, or God to be pigeonholed by human expectations, rather than allowing God to set the, the terms of his, own, of his own character and his own actions and his own being. And so Jesus says, God is a spirit. God is seeking people to worship him who worship according to that fact, who understand God's spiritual nature and are not going around trying to compare God to other things. Not, they're not going around trying to bring God down to our level. Instead, they're humbling themselves before the God who is far beyond themselves. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people like that to worship him, who take him seriously for who he is without trying to break him down to its parts. It turns out God is extremely jealous about this. Extremely jealous about it. This is what makes this such a crucial conversation. God, the first three commandments of the ten address this very issue. Number one, don't worship anything but me. Number two, don't make an image Don't make an image of me and don't worship it. Don't try to make me look like you or like anything else. Don't do it. Three, don't take my name in vain. When you speak about me, speak accurately. Speak truthfully. Don't just invent stuff. Don't bring me down to your level. God is very jealous because if we approach God as if he's something less than he is, can we really say we're approaching God? Can we really say we're encountering the Lord if we're just simply encountering the work of our own imagination? Think about when the Israelites built the golden calf. Remember what Aaron said? He didn't say, Israel, let's worship a calf. He said, Israel, let's worship Yahweh. And here's a great way to do it. Look at this calf. Isn't this a lot like Yahweh? That's what he did. And God, did God like that? Absolutely not. Because it was one, another way of trying to reduce God down to our own level. God doesn't want to be reduced to our level. And it's bad for us 
when we reduce God to our level. So Jesus to the Samaritan woman, God is bigger. God is spirit. You must worship him that way. And that's going to actually be, as Patty said, the key to everything that's going wrong in your life for you to get back to God on his own terms. I say it all the time. We are so tempted to try to get God to go on our terms all the time. And God is always saying, I will not allow that. You must come to me on my terms, according to my will and my uh, word. All right, that's the first thing. Now let's look at the second. What implications does this have for worshiping God? Jesus says it simply, again, verse 24, God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does the word must say to you? You got to, right? It follows necessarily from what he just said. If God is spirit, then the only way to worship him is to worship him in spirit and in truth, whatever that means. We'll get there in just a second. It's a must thing. Uh, Our worship, the way we approach God, the way we worship him, must be directed by who he is in fact, who he is in reality, not just by who we want him to be or imagine him to be. That's actually the first step to learning how to live with God, to learning how to be in a relationship with God. And learning how to worship God is learning how to have him set the terms. If God is spirit, worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Let's talk about what that means, in spirit and in truth. There are really two schools of thought about this. One school of thought is it's referring to the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Bible, right? So almost like capital S, capital T. As if Jesus is saying you must worship by the enabling of the Holy Spirit and according to the revealed will of God in the Bible. And I I think that's actually very true. Whether that's exactly what Jesus means or not, I think that's a true statement. The second line of thought, which might be a little bit more likely, is the lowercase s and the lowercase t. If God is spirit, the only way to worship him is with your spirit, meaning sincerely, from the heart, and in truth, that is, not faking it but being completely, um, completely sincere in the way that you approach God. Uh, well, we might be able to mash the two together and say, Jesus probably means a little bit of both. Uh, if God has a spiritual nature and he wants us to worship him according to his nature, well, we have to listen to his word to get that knowledge. And only the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to receive it and to respond to it. And... Of course, if God has a spiritual nature, he's not worshipped by mere outward service. He's not worshipped merely by outward appearances. He's worshipped by hearts. He's worshipped by hearts. Yes, outward actions are involved, but they only really mean anything if they are animated by a heart that really wants to approach God and love him. To approach God with a united heart that wants God with more than anything else, with Understanding with faith, with love, with brokenheartedness. You know, the Bible says that God loves the sacrifices of a broken heart. Uh, He loves those who desire him. And so those who come to worship him must come with a desire to do so. Uh, If they're to worship him 
rightly. Uh, we've got to come with thankfulness and delight and reverence and humility. There's a whole laundry list of things, of beautiful things, that we ought to bring to God if we're, if we're having a heart that is truly shaped by the reality of who God is. This woman was without true worship in her life. Jesus is setting out to restore that for her. And he does that first by reminding her of who God is over against who she she thinks he is, a God of hills, a God of H2O only, to get him to think about the God who is spirit, the fountain of all other life, so that she will then realize that she must worship him according to his will and with a sincere and true heart that desires and longs for the God who is spirit. If this woman follows what Jesus says, which there's every indication that she does, this woman's main issue in her life, not to say all of her issues, but her main issue is going to be well on the way to being solved. And the same thing is true for us. Did you know that worship is the most important thing in your life? Did you know that? A human being can't get any higher than when a human being is truly worshiping God. It's, it's the ultimate reason why we were made. Uh, it's going to be the ultimate employment that we all have in heaven. It's a big deal. It's almost like However we worship, everything else in life is going to follow it, either for good or for ill. And so this is teaching us some basic principles. We have to pay attention to what God says about himself. We have to ask the Lord to give us a real sincere inner heart desire to know God and to interact with God and to respond to God. And then we have to come with the sincerest heart that we can. Asking the Lord, always, of course, depending on the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Um, Imagine the revolutionary nature of this for the woman at the well. She had grown up a Samaritan. Samaritans were followers, like I said, of a cult, basically, that mixed Jewish things with pagan things. She thought she was worshiping God rightly if she showed up at a certain hill at Samaria... And did certain physical actions and said certain words. Kind of a ritualism. But you know what? Not many, well, not many Christians do better than that. But certainly not many Jews in Jesus' day did better than the Samaritans did. It's just they attached all that significance to Jerusalem instead of the hill at Samaria. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions that you're going to think are maybe unimportant, but I assure you they're important, all right? Is, the, is Jerusalem better than Samaria? In other words, were the Jews right and the Samaritans wrong about that? Is it a trick question, okay? It's not a trick question, although I will say Jesus answers it for you in the passage. If you look 
at verse 22? What's the answer? Verse 22 is, what does it say? Well, verse 22 doesn't say neither, does it? He does say it's neither, but before he says it's neither, he, he takes a side. Does he not? Am I right that it's 22? Yeah, he says you, meaning y'all, Samaritans, worship what you don't know. We Jews, what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. In other words... Listen, in this debate between Jews and Samaritans, we're right. You're wrong. Jesus to the woman. Now, why, why would Jesus say such a thing? Again, this is a crazy conversation. Why would Jesus say that to her? Well, because, right? The Bible supported that people were supposed to worship at Jerusalem. It did not support that people were supposed to worship at the hill at Samaria. They believed that because they had mixed the real faith with pagan faith. Jesus says the idea that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem came from David and then and Moses before him. And that's why we do it. God said to do it. And so we do it. We're right. You're wrong. However, isn't it interesting that Jesus goes on to say, but the time is coming and actually is now already here when the answer to that question is going to change a little bit because then it's not going to matter whether you're at Jerusalem or whether you're at Samaria or in Mulberry or where, Timbuktu or wherever. If you're worshiping in spirit and truth, you're worshiping God the way God wants you to worship him. Now here's an interesting thing. Because even though the Jews were correct about their location up until the time of Christ, that location was not meant to be the essence of what it means to worship God truly. Going up to, to Jerusalem to the temple to visit God was a giant symbol of what it means to go to God through Christ Jesus. Temple worship was a symbol. It had many parts to it. You walked up to the temple and you had to do what? Kill an animal. Actually, multiple animals. You had one for your sins. You had other animals that would then follow as a thanksgiving to God for the forgiveness of your sins. You had priests who stood there and offered praises and prayers on your behalf because only they could go in before you into the inner place. I mean, this was a giant, symbolic, lived, almost object lesson of what life would be like when Jesus comes. Jesus is announcing to the woman something amazing. He's saying, yes, Samaritans, you have been wrong up to now, and we Jews have been right. But let me tell you, since I've come, neither of y'all are going to be right unless you get on board with me. Because I am the temple. I am the sacrifice offered on the altar for your sins. I am also the one who helps you offer your sacrifice of praise and response. Guess what? You want to talk about a priest? I am your priest. You want to talk about an altar? I'm going to go to the altar in heaven and sprinkle my blood there. You want to talk about incense rising? My prayers are going to be mingled with your prayers in the heavenly throne room. 
You want to talk about jewels and robes and all these wonderful outward things? I am going to be decked out in glory because of my resurrection, representing you in glory in the throne above all thrones. So do you want to know how to worship God? Look at me, Jesus says. Follow me. Again, getting her back to where he started. Ask of me and I will give you living water that if you drink of it, you'll never go thirsty again. Yes, the Jews were more correct than the Samaritans because they had the Bible and they listened to the Bible and the Samaritans didn't. However, the symbolic temporary things that were given through Moses were almost ready to expire. Which shows us today as believers in Jesus even more clearly what true worship is. It was, it was all too easy to get confused in the Old Testament. I think. Now, the Old Testament worship was beautiful. It would have been beautiful, I imagine. And it would have been awe-inspiring. And I think it would have fed people's faith if they were looking for the right things. But imagine it. If worship was about going to a certain city on a certain hill, bringing certain animals and sacrificing those animals, what would you automatically begin to think if you weren't looking for the right things? If I do the right things in the right places, God will love me. Coin in coke comes out or snickers or whatever it is you want give god what he asks for god gives the goodies the formula has been done i've shown up in the right place at the right time to do the right thing and jesus says no that actually was never what the old testament was about it wasn't about that at all even in the old testament god says it's a broken heart that i desire not a sacrifice the sacrifice was only symbolic of a broken heart. In the New Testament, we get this greater thing because our worship is cleared of all those things because we don't need them anymore. So we have Jesus straight up. We know about the birth of Jesus. We know about the cross. We know about the resurrection. We know Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. We know he's the priest, prophet, and king. And so we come in a simple way to worship God, which can free us up to be more focused on the all-important spiritual and aspect, the all-important issue of sincerity, rather than getting caught up just in endless rituals. Here's the great thing. about To, to be a Jew at Jerusalem, think about all that it took to worship in the Old Testament. How expensive was it to worship the Lord? In fact, they had to have different levels of offering to accommodate for different social economic levels because it was expensive to come to worship. And it was expensive for the whole nation to put it on. Think of all the gold. What does it take to worship as a Christian together as a church? Now, you know, sometimes we way overcomplicate it, but what does it actually take? People, a Bible, a desire to sing some songs of praise, a little bit of water in a bowl, a table with some bread and some wine on it. Boom, church. If the hearts of the people gathered around those things that are so simple, showing us Jesus so much more clearly than the Old Testament rituals did, 
if those people who come to those things have a real desire to encounter the living God, boom, church. It actually costs very little. And there's very little you have to learn by way of ritual so that you and I in Christ can focus almost entirely on getting the heart right, humbling the heart, preparing to receive God's grace, preparing to respond by speaking and proclaiming God's praises back to him together. Isn't that cool? God is spirit. Here's what one writer says. God is a spirit infinitely happy. Therefore, we must approach him with cheerfulness. This is Christian worship. It doesn't cost lots of money, but it does cost this. Everything you have. You have to bring cheerfulness. God is a spirit of infinite majesty. Therefore, we must come to him with reverence. God is a spirit infinitely high. Therefore, we must offer up our sacrifices with the deepest humility. He is a spirit infinitely holy. Therefore, we must address him with purity. He is a spirit infinitely glorious. We must therefore acknowledge his excellency in all that we do and in our measures contribute to his glory by having the highest aims in his worship. He is a spirit infinitely provoked by us because of our sin. Therefore, we must offer up our worship in the name of the one mediator, Jesus, who makes peace between us and God. And you could go on, list more things about God who is spirit, and therefore this is what it requires of our hearts. It's not that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. It's just that it only matters when it's an expression of the heart. Here's what another person says. To give God the service of the body and not the soul is hypocrisy. But to give God the service of the spirit and not the body is sacrilege. To give him neither is atheism. I'm going to read that one again. I like that one. To give God the service of the body and not the soul is hypocrisy. But to give him your spirit but not your body is sacrilegious. Right? To give him neither is atheism. Jesus is saying to this woman, and this is why this is a crucial conversation. It, it touches the very core of why she was made and why we're made. We were made to know God. We were made to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we were made to offer the very essence of our hearts back to him in worship. And the only way we can do that is if we allow the spirit of God and the truth about God given in his word to shape how we think about him and how we, how we respond to him, the attitude that we have towards him. At every level, which means when we come to worship, we ought to come prepared. We ought to be attentive while we're worshiping on God. And yes, even after we worship, we need to review how it went so that next time we can come better. Worship is the most important thing in our lives because it's where we interact with God on his terms. It will shape everything else about us from top to bottom. Therefore, when Jesus encounters us in the gospel, don't be surprised if we want to bring up all kinds of topics. Oh, but my husband. 
Oh, but my wife. Oh, but my kids. Oh, but this. Don't be surprised if Jesus wants to say, oh, but God is spirit. Oh, but God. Don't forget God. Worship. Your heart. My glorious ministry on the cross to free you from the shadows and symbols of an Old Testament faith that saddled the people and burdened them so often, which now you've been unburdened from. Right? Because if we had to go to Jerusalem to worship, guess what? They ain't flying there right now. We're learning that the hard way with our trip that we had planned. They're not flying there. But the Lord Jesus has come, and he now sends the gospel to all the world and says, Worship me wherever, so long as you come on my terms. All right.